to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Kat. And I'm Rich. You're Michael. You're in a fancy French restaurant. You order creme brulee for dessert. It's beautiful. It's sweet. It's irritatingly perfect. Suddenly, Michael realizes he doesn't want creme brulee. He wants something else. What does he want? Jello. Jello? In this special Valentine's Day episode, we're tickled Lavender to be talking about PJ Hogan's romantic comedy, My Best Friend's Wedding, one of the most successful films in 1997. The screenplay written by Ronald Bass, who'd won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for the Dustin Hoffman Tom Cruise vehicle Rain Man nine years before. This saw Julia Roberts solidify her status as the most bankable actress working in Hollywood and won Rupert Everett Best Supporting Actor of the Year at the London Critics Circle Film Awards. Tonight we'll be marching into the karaoke bar with Kimmy, played by Cameron Diaz, Michael, played by Dermot Mulroney, George, played by Rupert Everett, and of course Jules, played by Julia Roberts. Is this the most tangled web of balloon ribbons in rom-com history? Let's crack open this baby. We should have stopped in our evil plotting to have that manicure, but it's too late now. I really enjoy this film. <laughs> Let's get it out there. <laughs> uh, was this the first time you'd seen it? Um, I don't know which sounds awful um i need to update my letterbox clearly um some of it was definitely familiar and i watched it in preparation for this and um i i don't really know what i was expecting i think obviously i'd, I'd picked up your enthusiasm for the film <laughs> in in our discussions it was very good it was enjoyable i i liked it's not formulaic it's not normal there's so much about it that goes beyond what you'd imagine this to be perhaps yes i like how messed up everyone is in this film (laughs) and if we look at it in the context of some of the most successful rom-coms of the 80s and 90s so if you think about sleepless in seattle when harry met sally while you were sleeping and the other julia roberts vehicle pretty woman put it in the kind of context of all of those films as you say it does kind of take you somewhere that you're not expecting this one doesn't it and I think it's a really interesting choice for Julia Roberts to have made the height of her fame for to take a role like this and also to have it so that she's kind of going up against this up-and-coming star in Cameron Diaz, who's so unbelievably beautiful and, you know, wonderful to watch and has so much kind of magnetism with the camera herself. And for your protagonist to kind of lose to that person and for it to be, you know, Julia Roberts, who's kind of meant to be the person that we're all meant to be rooting for, that does make it quite an interesting film, I think, even now. Yeah, I mean, like, everyone kind of sees Julia Roberts as... The, the icon and and you know she she is but um to have a film where as you say she doesn't well she doesn't get the guy that, that you could sit there and watch this film and if it were made a hundred times and 95 96 percent of the time julia roberts would walk away with the guy at the end of the film because yeah. that's how a lot of that kind of film works yes exactly and over the 90s and probably the 2000s as well there were a lot of these very generic 
rom-coms where they probably had Jennifer Lopez in or Matthew McConaughey or something like that and they they <laughs> they'd follow a formula and you you know they'd have the little bit of falling out somewhere towards the second third of the film and then they'd get back together at the end um yeah and in this it it doesn't do that you've got I mean we have to imagine we're living in a world where Julia Roberts is this kind of scruffy unloved you know I mean she's a food critic and probably doing fairly well at it but yeah. you know she, she's it's kind of portrayed that not that she's a mess but she's kind of you know she's a bit unlucky she's not met the right guy it's kind of although doesn't that, she push them away you say she's unloved but doesn't isn't that the point with this guy michael that they had one hot month like she has with all the guys and then she gets restless and she leaves yeah. them yeah and and whatever leads to this it's kind of yeah. like oh look at her you know she and it's only when um, Michael and Kimmy, or Michael the friend turns around and says he's marrying Kimmy, that she kind of realises, oh my God, I need him. This friend, one-time lover, partner, whatever. Yeah. I suddenly decide, because they had one of these pacts, that if they're 28 and unmarried, then they've clearly failed in life and must marry each other. 28 is such 28. a funny uh, and amazing... Were you, were you married by the time you were 20? Actually, you probably no, were, I was weren't not. you? Okay. No, I wasn't, no. Okay. And... It's just strange that, you know, she she kind of makes this point after he he calls her that he's going to marry Kimmy and she suddenly decides she needs him and and she must win and goes through all these trials and tribulations. And and the fact that jumping to the end of the film, after all her plotting and all these schemes that, that they don't work. Yeah, and at the end, it's such a refreshing change. It's like when you watch, <laughs> when you watch a film and the bad guys win, it's fun. It's nice. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, I think that it's funny. I I put this film with a handful of other films that came out around this time in the nineties, and they probably all did hit me at a certain moment in my life. But um, there was also. The First Wives Club, there's this, there's Romy Michelle's High School Reunion. And also, even though it's a very different kind of film, I sort of put swingers in with these ones as well, where it's kind of like this little collection of films where even though, you know, romantic love comes into it, they're all kind of these films that make you feel really good, but they're kind of all about friendship rather than they this sort of idea that you're going to be able to sort of have this perfect existence with this other person that will be your soulmate. And I think that's the thing that's interesting about this one is that in some ways you kind of, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but there's an element where her relationship with George feels more like the kind of uh, sweet kind of loving you know that feeling of someone loving you unconditionally even when they can see that you're being an absolute nightmare and they can be honest with you but at the end of the day they love you and that's the kind of note it leaves you on it leaves you kind of thinking he you know look at him he came all the way back even though he hates to fly he came back to the wedding to be with her that's the most romantic thing in the world yeah I think that's the point again where she has George and uh, sounds maybe controversial, but like her chemistry with George and in fact, George's chemistry with everyone in the film is ahead of, of everything else. And, and I, and I, I feel a bit harsh on um, Derbert Mulroney 
and he'll always be the bloke from Friends. You know, um, <laughs> but I think he's, he's who <clears throat> Rachel Green should have ended up with. I think I think that worked. I think that chemistry. Anyway. Possibly, I, I just kind of <laughs> I kind of lump him in a little bit in in this kind of film where he's almost like the bland generic '90s rom com person. Yeah, and I guess yep. it's difficult when you compare it to when you're putting anyone up against 90s Julia Roberts um, mm. in the way that, say, what was his name? Was it Dylan McDermott? This kind of handsome, dark-haired guy who's quite yeah. bland. You know, and yes, yes. Because, you know, if he's in a film with someone who's clearly the star, whether it's, I don't know, Kate Hudson or in that kind of era, they need someone else who just needs to sit there and bounce off a little bit. And And I feel like... The scene where George and Jules are on the boat, not sorry, not George, uh, Michael and Jules are on the boat and they're kind of having their very close you know, bit of time together before the wedding. And they're clearly, you know, there's clearly still something there. And he starts singing the way you look tonight to her. Mm. It just feels, it, it feels, I don't know, I, I didn't really buy it in the way that, you know, and again, it's the Hollywood thing, but when you see George with Jules, there seemed to be such a connection between them that perhaps yes. the, the friendship trumps the almost was, never was romance. And I think she's having one of those moments with this guy where she's projecting a lot of nostalgia onto him. I mean, I think that you can see when she's having conversations with Kimmy about him, I think Jules can actually recognize a lot of what's wrong about Michael potentially or what could be frustrating about him as a partner and that there's almost a part of her you know I mean I think she says it's to George that you know she kind of knows that Kimmy is kind of too good for him and that she'd actually be unhappy following I think she calls him an insensitive doofus saying if she followed him around everywhere she'd just be so unhappy so I'm actually doing her a giant favor by meddling in this way and obviously that's a you know, that's her way of justifying her actions. But I think she does sort of know that he's not necessarily sort of worth all of this. But isn't that, do you think that's kind of true to life though? That sometimes that obviously can go both ways, but sometimes people can tie themselves up in knots over quite average people, but just because there's competition. Possibly. I mean, one of the things that came up, one of the quotes that came up when George said to him, do you, said to her, do you really love him or is it just about winning? And there is a competitive side yeah. to this as well, where, and, and we talked about this on one of our recent Christmas episodes, and about putting someone on a pedestal. Yeah. And it was the Love Actually one where it was Kira Knightley and um, the guy with the cards, and you know he's put her on this pedestal, and Jules has put Michael on this kind of pedestal of. It, it seems very forced. And she's yeah. thro thrown him up there because all of a sudden he's unavailable. It's like, you know, you want the one thing you can't have. Yeah. And she's decided that she must have him now. You know, this, this very bland, handsome person. Um, yeah. <laughs> and how some of the schemes that she does is strange as well because you think, I think in a lot of films, these are the kind of things that a guy does 
and it's seen as oh you scamp you you know he he's trying to court a lady by emailing her the you know the, the emails and all the things about planting seeds about jobs and stuff yet yes it seems quite bold and say controversial but it seems very unusual that they do it from a female point of view completely uh, um especially with julia roberts who you know she's either her character from pretty woman or we see further down the line in in notting hill or something mm. like that and it's um it's definitely a bold choice to have you know her as this kind of can you call her a good villain or a bad goodie yeah it's done from a, a the film is kind of from the point of view of the villain isn't it but but she i mean it's my favorite performance of hers because i think she manages to get you to even when you're watching her do despicable things, you're still, you know, seeing the narrative unfold from her perspective, and she's she's managing to keep your engagement with her, isn't she? Because there's something about how, as you say, she manages to convey the mixture of kind of um, being competitive, but also having a genuine self-loathing about her. I mean, that thing of comparing herself to Jello. And calling Kimmy the creme brulee, and you know, sitting outside the hotel room, s- smoking and saying I'm a bad person who does you know bad things to good people, and you can sort of see that she kind of the more of this stuff she does, the the kind of more she hates herself, and that doesn't in any way justify it, but I think she's very good at conveying that that feeling that the more and more bitter you get, the more it kind of forces you away from yourself if you know what I mean yeah and I think it would have been difficult I mean there's there's probably only a handful of people who could have pulled that off really um and and as you said earlier you know you had her up against this young what was how old was Kimmy supposed to be 20 she's meant to be 20 Hmm. she's meant to be 20 yeah so So, yeah. yeah You've got a lot, a lot of things going on there where it's, you know, co- competition already, and then there's the thing about age and the fact that she's from a quite a well-off background, very well-off background. Mm. Um, you know, so there's a lot of different clashes of culture and that kind of thing going on. And it, it reflects something that I think maybe, maybe women relate to a little bit more than than men, um, although obviously it can go the other way around. But I think that when you quite often when you reach sort of around around the age of 30 quite a lot of the male friends that you have or the ex-boyfriends that you have start to date women who are significantly younger than you are and quite often they're incredibly intelligent and charming women but they're quite often kind of more accepting of the guy's foibles than the women your age are (laughs) they have a they have a sweet adoring possibly you know naivety to them which you can kind of see must be absolutely irresistible to the guy uh you know and and i and i say this is someone who's dated younger people so i completely get it (laughs) but you know do you know what i mean it's that i think it kind of reflects because you're you know that jules is kind of at the end of her 20s and kimmy is 20 so it does have that thing about it doesn't it where she sees how kind of bright-eyed and accepting Kimmy is of all of his foibles yeah imagine having a midlife crisis at 27 28 yes weird <laughs> <laughs> I know that's the thing I, I kind of when you when you watch it now I think 28 you know I, I wish maybe they should have made her 10 years older but I, I don't know I don't know 
it's all it's it's still I think it's still completely relatable in that way but I have yeah Michael you touched on something there before about him dancing with her on the boat and there's something about the fact that he didn't tell Jules about Kimmy and she only gets that phone call a few days before though I think maybe he had been leaving her messages but then he walks in on her when she's changing and he tells her that she looks really good without you know clothes on and he just feels very flirtatious I think through the course of the film in a way where when I was re-watching it this time I kind of thought if he if he's someone that's got a bit of an ego and he senses that Julia Roberts's character is feeling a bit insecure and maybe a bit competitive it almost comes across like he's trying to encourage that I don't know what you think there is that a bit I mean I, I guess what I was kind of struggling to see was that if he's so into Kimmy and they've only been together for a short period of time to the point where this is becoming something of a whirlwind um, where they're getting married so soon I mean effectively if Kimmy's 20 she can't drink you know what yeah that's a good point um and I don't know like if, if he's that into her then really I mean would he have that much of an interest in Jules I don't know because I guess you can get a bit of tunnel vision in that kind of in in that kind of situation where yeah the fact is and again you know we're, we're also having to remind ourselves we live in a world where this man walks into a room where Julia Roberts is standing there in her underwear and he's just sitting there going like he might as well be Vic Reeves rubbing his thighs <laughs> Because he's a human being. and <laughs> That's a very specific uh, uh, <laughs> reference for people our age. <laughs> well, yeah. so I'm definitely not 28 or 20 or anything <laughs> like that. Um, and, you know, he, he's obviously confronted with this awful sight. You know, this is always like the woman in The Shining at coming above. And, yes. you know, he can think of nothing <laughs> else but to compliment her and remind her that he's seen her naked. You look really good with that clothes on. George, she's toast. He's clearly like a diet George Clooney. Ouch. Well, you know, I think in a different world. But then I suppose at this point, George Clooney was Batman and you don't want to overload the film. And the point of the film is you've got Cameron Diaz and Julia Roberts. You don't really want to ladle it too heavy with stardust and it probably take any, you know, it's their film or it's Julia Roberts' film. But then, yeah, yeah. on the other hand, you know, we've talked about George, who yes. in many ways picks up the film and runs off with it. Um, yes, I think that's true. And is, and is I mean, we, we, we talked before recording about how his portrayal of a gay character, you know, he, he skirted quite a line because some of it was quite cliche. And yet some of it was really quite open and refreshing although the cliche bits are where he's kind of playing up to the of stereotype course, yeah. that he says yeah. it because he's trying to humiliate her in front yeah. of people so yeah. so yeah. yeah so but yeah so but i mean he's he's hamming it up because that's the point yeah um but it's it was really i mean you know we talk about film stealing performances and rupert Everett really did really interesting because he has this 
He has this aura about him where he feels actually like much more of a sorted character than the other three central characters. They Mm. all feel as if they've got a lot of messiness going on underneath the surface that's unresolved. Whereas he feels very at peace with himself. Whenever we see him living his life, you know, he's giving elegant dinner parties. He's at book readings. He feels like the person who's got their life in order and yeah that that does feel refreshing and also he's he's kind of dashing in the way that I think that Michael isn't and I think that's completely deliberate too and I think that also as I was saying at the beginning there's something about the romance of their friendship his kind of suave witty presence you know as as someone there as this other male presence I think is really it's really key to what makes it such an enjoyable film. And the fact that he sings Say a Little Prayer in the middle of this film is just such a joy. That should happen in the middle of every single film. Rupert Everett should stand up in a lobster restaurant and sing that song. I think that should happen in, you know, Apocalypse Now or <laughs> Seventh Seal or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's, again, like his performance there and when when Jules calls him and leaves him the answer phone message when he's having his dinner party and his partner is kind of rolling his eyes almost like oh it's his needy friend again he, yeah. you know it's almost like a say a pet you know to, to their <laughs> eyes a little bit like you know oh his friend you know with all her issues uh, and and he goes off and you know jumps to her side or flies to her side um but yeah, he's very dashing and Michael is bedecked in beige. Yes. And the way he speaks to Kimmy during that bar scene when she's sort of timidly pitching the idea of him working for her dad, he flies off the handle in really quite an aggressive way in front of Jules. And it's, and it's you know, kind of this this sort of performance where you think this this person feels as if he doesn't really quite know what he wants. Hmm. It's almost like they rushed into this marriage. There's a little bit. Isn't Sorry, there? does that sound judgmental? <laughs> we don't judge here. But it's I think, um, but I think that there's a strong argument for that because I think that there's quite a lot in the film about Michael telling Jules that she doesn't let her lovers hold her in public and is uncomfortable with intimacy, whereas Kimmy isn't uncomfortable with intimacy. And that they had that moment when he proposed where he just shouted it to her on the train and she said yes. And there's something about the impulsivity of their relationship where on the one hand, you could kind of think, oh, maybe they should be thinking this through a little more. But then on the other, you think, well, maybe that's kind of part of what is meant to be endearing and romantic about their connection is the fact that they're not overthinking it all they just they just want each other and they just want Mm. to get married and it doesn't really matter what hurdles are thrown in their wake these are two people that for whatever reason you know she wants to even though she does want to be an architect she wants to quit school and go on the road with him which is you know like a very well it's the kind of thing people do when they're head over heels in love isn't it apparently so and the fact that you know, she is quite easily turned to the concept of um, her dad giving Michael a job. It doesn't take a lot. I mean, this all happens over what, four days. Yeah. And, you know, she has her career goals realigned somewhat. He gets offered a job. 
then finds out about this email that Jules sent from the father-in-law's email account, you know, which is something I guess has aged quite well, I suppose, <laughs> in, in, you know, in, in now 2022, you know, we, yeah. um, we joke about, you know, how, how things have, ta- have changed, but, you know, we're now at an era, we're looking back and they had email, the mobile phones were enormous, but, yeah. um, you know, this, this could have been a, she left her phone lying around she sent a Instagram message or something like whatever. Yes, or maybe she did using. a leaked a tweet or something like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, or set up a rival account. But um, yeah. you know, but th- this is that kind of thing where all this happens over four days, and I guess you know it's kind of reassuring as well at the, at the end when when the wedding does go ahead and all is happy and and luckily the family aren't really aware of the shenanigans going on. You know, as far as everyone's concerned, the email was only really... It, it didn't get out. It yes. didn't get back to the father-in-law and, and Jules eventually owned up to it. And um, and they all got on, went off and lived happily ever after, it seems. <laughs> well, um, maybe. <laughs> maybe. But, um, but then again, like, you know, it's not like in uh, another film, like if this was the roles reversed and Julia Roberts' character was a guy and all of a sudden it's like, it's like pretty in pink at the end when Ducky sees the other blonde woman and, and she calls him over and says, oh, yeah, well, I got turned down, but look at me. Look at what I could have won. Yeah. Oh, well, I've got an interesting fact about that, if you want to hear it, Come on, if you don't always, know this already. Always. So it's very similar to the Pretty in Pink ending in some ways, although not in others, in that, uh, like Andrew McCarthy, Julia Roberts in that last scene is wearing a wig oh. because the ending had to be reshot. And the original ending had her meet a new guy who was going to be played by John Corbett, who plays Aiden in Sex and the City. And that was going to be the ending. Okay. That didn't go down well with test audiences. Test audiences obviously just wanted more George. (laughs) Mm. So they had to reshoot the ending. And that's the ending that sticks with the film. And that's so interesting because it wouldn't have been nearly as much of a subversive rom-com if they had had that original ending. And you just want more George in that film, just as a general note, don't you? So to bring him back at the end of the film and have her not meet a new guy and instead the romance is in their friendship, I think makes it a much more interesting movie, don't you? Oh, definitely. Because, again, it's kind of that thing where in most other versions or most other dimensions or timelines this film would have ended that way and people were going oh god of course you know handsome guy who happened to be like a third cousin of someone who they made eyes across the tent or whatever gazebo um and you know and, and history has shown test audiences have a lot of power they're often right they're often wrong <laughs> you know, it's like the time when I saw a test screening of the remake of Footloose and suggested they made it more like Die Hard. And <laughs> I haven't seen it since, so I don't know if they did. Um, but I'm sure it's they did. Uh, I, unless I don't even know who was in it. Dennis Quaid jumped. Oh, maybe he could have jumped out of a burning. No, no. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's important that you don't go with the obvious um, and, and some of the other films that we've talked about like when to, to link this to Notting Hill because of course we're going to because it's got Julia Roberts in it um, yeah. when at the end of that film Julia Roberts uh, Anna and Hugh Grant got together after all of these 
fallings out and getting back together and everything. And they ended up together at the end because, yeah. of course, they did because we saw that coming a mile off. Yeah. Would the film have been as well received if they didn't? I don't know. It's a different type of film. But yeah. this this works because of that. Well, the, the ending works perfectly. You get a bit more George and you get a bit more George being dashing because he's in a tuxedo and looking like James... <laughs> You know, he's, he's trying to be James Bond and being just fabulous. And it's yeah, just, and, and, yeah. it works. Exactly. And as, and as you said earlier, their connection feels more convincing than the connection that Jules has with Michael. So in that sense, it, it leaves you on a, on a note that feels more moving, I think, because you think... Um, yeah, you know, the, the whole film opens with the two of them having dinner together. And Jules, at the beginning of the film, when she's assessing the food and she's having this conversation with George, feels the most collected that you see her all the way through the film. That's when she's living the new life that she has now. She's a food critic. She enjoys it. She's confident. She's got this great best friend in George. And that the fact that the film brings you back again to that moment and it sort of shows you like, yeah, she was having a little bit of a crisis in confidence, maybe about getting older, maybe about the fact that she might not be the kind of person that wants to get married. Some of us don't want to get married and that's okay. But sometimes when you realise that, you have a moment because it is kind of maybe going against some of what society might think that you should do. That might be a bit a bit better now than it was at that point in the 90s, that you might have a little bit of a crisis in confidence. Hopefully it doesn't manifest itself in writing an email to get your ex-boyfriend sacked though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, imagine, because I think at one point they mentioned that it was nearly her 28th birthday. Like, I think George just happened to get in for a bit of... Um, a bit of exposition. It's like, so you're turning 28 in three weeks' time or something like that. And, yeah. um, you know, I mean, bear in mind, so she's 27 and she's a food critic, you know, and in these days she'd be some kind of influencer and she'd be the... Uh, and that. But, you know, that, that kind of industry hasn't changed very much. And, yeah. I mean, I'm not a foodie at all. Um, I mean, I'd be happy with a KFC. But it's just... <laughs> we're in that thing where... She starts the film with George. She ends yeah. the film with George. Yeah. It's a nice little symmetry going on. And had she met Sex and the City fella, mm. that just would have, especially if it hadn't been in the film, it just would have been weird. And whereas that exactly. worked in Pretty in Pink, it didn't work. It wouldn't have worked. Or it wouldn't have been as, as memorable here. And that, I mean, that sounds awful. She got her comeuppance, but it wasn't mm. mean-spirited which I think is a nice way of kind of... She lost... They had the cat fight. Well, well, the almost cat fight in the ladies. And I mean, all good films have a scene in the ladies' toilets. And um, with a crowd. You know, and that was well done because there were no fists thrown. There was no blood. They weren't scrapping on the floor because, of course, you know, you can't appeal to men without Julia Roberts and Cameron Diaz rolling around on the floor together. And... <clears throat> You have to. That they what film were, did you watch? <laughs> I don't, different version. Um, but they, they didn't have that, so it was kind of a lot more sensible, and it wasn't gratuitous, and it wasn't kind of, you know, you didn't have the big fight scene that you would have got in a different version. One that you get Kimmy 
shouting, leave me alone, you bitch, which I think is kind of quite good for Kimmy to show this other side of her. And then she also, there's also that revelation in that, in that fight where Kimmy, where Kimmy says, I made you my maid of honor. I can't believe you've done this. And, and Jules says, you just wanted to keep me close. That's why you made me your maid of honor. You just didn't trust me. And Kimmy says, well, you know, I was right about that, wasn't I? And she says, yeah, but that's not my fault. So it becomes clear at that point in the fight as well that Kimmy's actually been much more wise to what's going on the whole time than she's been making out, which is really good, I think, because it just shows that everyone, everyone kind of involved in the situation, no one is really as dumb as they're making out. Everyone kind of has an inkling about everyone's agenda, which makes it really interesting when you look back, you know, on everything that's gone on. Because that scene in the lift near the beginning where um, they're on their way up to the the reception um, and Jules gets claustrophobic and, and, and Kimmy hits the stop button and is very in your face. Yes, she really is. <laughs> you know, and I mean, if you're claustrophobic at the best of times, you've got Cameron Diaz getting right in your face, gr- grilling you and, and kind of ego massaging while kind of measuring you up. It's, yes. Um, it's, it's, it's weird because again, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, and you've seen that she kind of was doing the whole keep your friends close, enemies closer thing. Um, yeah, completely. But at the time, you know, watching it fairly blind as I did, it did just seem like, Jesus Christ, she's never, she's incessant. She's, you know, what you'd expect from a lot of, you know, it's like, uh, she's just really in your face and really happy. That's really weird. I threw the list away. He's not a balance sheet. He's Michael and loving him means loving all of him. You get nervous in small confined spaces, so it's sweet of you to want to be protective. But nothing ever could, ever did give me one moment's pause about this marriage. You become hysterical in small confined spaces. Except one. You. You'll always be there in his mind, this perfect creature that he loved for all those years. Well, perfection can get wearing after a while. I'm not kidding. I had to face up to all of my competitive drives, and believe me, I've got them. No. And after all, what, am I going to be jealous of you for the rest of my life? Our paths will keep on crossing. Of course. He'll always talk about you. It's only natural. And the answer was so simple. (laughs) I was going to predict that. You win. The whole point of that moment in the film where she's kind of driving wildly as well, asking her to be a maid of honour after only having kind of known her for a few minutes. And then, as you say, the lift scene where she stops the lift as well. Mm. And that, that kind of, it makes you feel... There is, yeah, there's something about that whole moment that feels a bit anxiety inducing and as if she's interrogating Jules that does make you as a viewer feel a bit uneasy about what's going to happen. And then, yeah, in the scenes where Michael is there again, she's much softer. So she kind of presents a sort of softer, more vulnerable side when Michael's around. But then, yeah, in the scenes where he's not around, it's she's actually much more sort of assertive and um as you say quite quite full on without equating her to hans gruber she's very much the benefits of a classical education <laughs> yeah uh, or expensive education anyway. <laughs> yeah completely uh i think the the karaoke scene is really <sighs> fantastic that that's funny because it's kind of again jules 
thinking she's being clever. Yes. Um, and it backfiring in a way that's kind of... it's While it's embarrassing to start with for Kimmy, it turns out it just forces the two of them together. Um, it's... Um, yeah, yes, it, exactly. The, the way they do it and the song she chooses and Michael's bland face, you know, warming to her throughout because he realises that, you know, yes, she's uncomfortable, but she's doing it for fun, to be fun with him. Um, it's, yes. it's really nicely done, I think. It's, it could have been, yeah. could have been handled yeah. very differently. Completely. And Cameron Diaz does it really, really well. And... It's it's a it's quite affecting as I see it's quite pre things like pop idol and stuff isn't it and American Idol because it has you know we're still we're still at a point in time when we can imagine the idea of someone's charm being kind of more important than their skills you know so if someone gets up and is vulnerable and gives something their all then that can be really really endearing and it's not kind of necessarily about the vocal acrobatics. I'd have judged Michael more if that was the case. If he just suddenly decided, like, oh, you can't sing, we're finished. Um, I mean, again, you know, it could have taken a mask off and it would have been Simon Cowell. But it is a nice kind of side that, you know, this film is handled in a way that could quite easily veer one way or the other. And... um, they keep it on just the kind of the side of cheeky and edgy without being mean, which... Yeah, and I think that we've talked in some of the other episodes that we've done, I think maybe when we were doing the Love Actually one, when the, we were talking about the little boy's relationship with um, the girl at school that he likes and how important it is actually in terms of getting you to engage with the relationship between two people for them both to show their humanity and I think in this is really good example because even though you can see why Cameron Diaz her character comes across as you know what does there's um you know there's that bit where George says you know oh yeah Jules said about you sweet adorable chocolate covered Kimmy those were her very words you know so you can see that Jules has been sort of thinking about her as being this sort of perfect uh person you know who but at the same time she she isn't just this kind of flat, flat character, Kimmy, that you're meant to kind of just sort of think, oh, yeah, she's just a bit of a bland, rich, blonde girl. You know, they give her a lot of kind of nuance and vulnerability and imperfection as well as being, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and all of that, you know, so that's really good, I think. She was right. I am crazy. Fought for someone I hardly knew. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, you. Uh, you still got that ring? I mean, he's he's literally having his cake and eating it to some degree. I think so. Um. You know, you've got you're marrying Cameron Diaz. You've got Julia Roberts desperately trying to steal you away, and he doesn't look like he's enjoying it all that much. Um, what's wrong with him? But it's <laughs> you know, but but then from his point of view, he again towards the end, <laughs> he's left with a dis, a decision of sorts, and then Kimmy walks into them and the the bandstand and and sees them kissing or her kissing him, 
as as the point is made you know did 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 he kiss back but um he he just seems like he's kind of there and you know he's got little agency whereas you know for Jules she's desperate and and hunting as it were yeah and i think that i th- i mean the thing is you've got to remember these two people Jules was the one that dumped him originally mm, yeah. and i think that that often you know that those kind of things they do dictate the tone of a relationship and he'll there'll probably be a bit of him that quite likes the validation of knowing that she wants him because i think when someone's rejected you there's something kind of quite comforting and you know if you run into them in future years and you think that you know that that you know they fancy you or whatever you know there might be some kind of ego stroking going on there but that doesn't necessarily mean that you think that they might actually love you in a way that would have any longevity so with this thing even though she is offering herself to him he might kind of know that Kimmy's the one that's going to follow him to the ends of the earth or at least for now whereas Jules might just kind of need that validation for the next couple of weeks and then will mm. actually get restless again because that is what she does and won't necessarily kind of want to make any big life sacrifices for him. I think it's clear that she will, you know, she's got she's got her own life going on now. She's not going to be able to do that. So he might, I think she ultimately, even though there's moments of absolute desperation here, I think she ultimately does hold the cards really. What else did he tell you? You hate weddings, you never go. You're not up for anything conventional or anything that's assumed to be a female priority, including marriage or romance or even love. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, she, she's got her food blog. Yeah, not a blog. Oh, I've forgotten this she's is a food the 90s. <laughs> she's a food critic. She's not on Instagram. And, um, you know, she, she'll move on to the next... Michael. There's a moment that Kimmy, that Kimmy says to her in the lobster restaurant. She says, when she, that's the point where she thinks that Jules is engaged to George. She says to her, "I was very worried about you. You know, going through all of those men, all of those broken relationships." And there is a kind of moment there where you think that Kimmy might not actually be being completely nice to Jules either because she's saying that in front of the person that she thinks is Jules's fiance and there's something about kind of emphasizing all of these broken relationships all these men I was terribly worried about you and it's a bit kind of condescending especially if it comes from someone who's 10 years younger than you are and about to get married and about to get married (laughs) what the world needs now is love sweet love it's the only thing that Uh, One thing that this film has, which is incredible, is that it's got all of these um, wonderful Bacharach and David songs running all the way through it. And it's got that great intro as well that's so sort of funny and tongue-in-cheek of the the girls doing the dance to Wishing and Hoping. Yeah, I think that's that's something that's quite... Because all all of those songs are so genuinely romantic. Like I say, A Little Prayer, I think it's maybe, maybe the loveliest pop song ever written. Uh... So it, that's the thing. The whole film does make you actually feel sort of like you're swept away on on that kind of lovely, lovely feeling that romantic comedies gives you while also undercutting it with all of this kind of nastiness. <laughs> <laughs> Just enough. They're, they're classic 
they're not overdone. I think the 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 tone of them works perfectly both in the film and most of them are pretty timeless, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. In fact, isn't isn't um there's a Bacharach and David song, isn't there, that's played in The Simpsons a lot. Um, is it Close to You? Is that the song yeah. that, that yeah. yeah Homer thinks about when he thinks about Marge? That's the yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of The Simpsons, you know, as we said at the book reading, um, Harry Shearer was there, Mr. Burns, of course. Yes! What a great cameo. Oh. And Paul Giamatti, who plays the, um, the smoking hotel worker. Yes, yeah. yes. It's funny, he, like, I, I, he, never, he never looked young, did he? <laughs> no. <laughs> he must have had a really tough paper round. No, but in a, in a way that shows you that sometimes the secret to a really great career is to have a recognisable face rather than be someone that's conventionally gorgeous. Because otherwise, as you say, you might you might fall into the to the beige category that you've been <laughs> describing, Dermot Mulroney. And so, um, so maybe sorry, did I overdo it? It's um, I think it wasn't it wasn't quite as vehement as when you were describing uh, who was it in Love Actually, the muscle bound web designer oh, yeah carl <laughs> carl carl yeah. the prick <laughs> exactly yes well i mean he wasn't beige he was just mahogany but um yeah that's a a different conversation and if you're new to the podcast yeah go back and listen to love actually <laughs> yeah, good podcast is for life not just for christmas completely oh speaking of which i was listening to a good episode the other day that links into this um which is a podcast series called pause and play it forward and that's hosted by uh nicola and rosie and they had a great episode on the luther vandross album give me the reason and this ties in with what we've been talking about because that has a cover of a Bacharach and david song called anyone who had a heart on it and i got the album when i was quite young and I used to listen to that and I used to think it was very romantic so um, yes these songs are just timeless they just run through run through popular culture and they make us feel all warm and fuzzy in great ways Yeah, maybe no one would get together without them well if you get the right music in there it makes everything work doesn't it I don't know why I was so carried away it's so, it's so we got for the whole podcast i didn't talk about the link that you mentioned between this and one of our other episodes um casino royale oh yes yes i did talk about kfc which was finger licking good <laughs> but um yeah the bit where uh jules has the wedding ring stuck on her finger and michael's intriguing technique of removing it with his mouth when he did that did that take you aback a little bit. I mean, that, that's quite a tender moment. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about it when, when James Bond did it in a shower. It's kind of that thing where, I mean, I'm sure there's a practical purpose for it, but if you've got a, a wedding ring stuck, but um, to put your f- best friend's finger in your mouth at any time is, <laughs> is a bold step.
Well, as we polish off the wedding cake and pop that potentially life-ruining email into drafts, we leave you with the question, what underhanded, despicable, not even terribly imaginative things have you done out of psychotic jealousy? I've been Rich. I've been Kat. And this has been Don't You Want Me? <laughs> <laughs>